Well, just a few days ago, thousands of people crammed into Times Square in New York City. There were recognizable faces and nameless masses all there alongside one another. They had come from far and wide to see out 2023 and to ring in the new year. You just know that the, the ball dropped and thousands of pounds of confetti fell from the sky. Strangers hugged, resolutions were made. It was a jubilant moment. But to what end? Here we are, six days later, and the ball has been tucked away. The confetti has been hauled off. The strangers are forgotten. So too are the resolutions. And we ask, what did it all mean? I mean, all that effort, all that emotion, all that expense, what, what did it do? Did, did anything really change? Now, it may be that with the benefit of hindsight, we'll one day look back and know that something really significant happened in that square at that moment. But I'm inclined to think that even with the benefit of hindsight, that we're going to look back on that gathering and realize that the effects of it are a whole lot like the confetti that rained down from the sky. Just weightless and flimsy and forgettable. In contrast, today, in Nehemiah chapter 8, I want us to consider a very different gathering, although similar. 2,500 years ago, thousands of people crammed into a square to mark a new beginning. There were recognizable names among them and lots of nameless masses. They had come from far and wide, from the furthest corners of the Babylonian empire, out of exile. And there was no glittering ball. There was no falling confetti. Instead, it was the people of God gathered around the word of God, strengthened by the joy of God for the glory of God. And while it's true that there were probably far fewer people involved in this meeting that we'll study today than the one we saw last Sunday night, I would argue that it is exceedingly more important because the effects of this gathering that we'll see today match the foundation it was built upon. Weighty and sturdy and unforgettable. And so if you would... Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, if you're using the red Bibles in the seat back in front of you, then you can follow along with us on page 403. Now, it can be tricky to jump into the 8th chapter of a story, let alone the 403rd page of a very complicated book like the Bible. So before I start reading, I just want to catch us up to where we are. Despite... All that God had done for his people in rescuing them and in giving them the promised land, they have abandoned him. They have turned to idols. They have run from their redeemer. And God has sent them off into exile. And they're now captives of a wicked and deplorable nation in Babylon. But even there, God has not abandoned his people despite all appearances. And instead, when they, like he told them in Deuteronomy 30, when they turn and trust in him and cry out to him, he still hears their pleas. And he rescues them and he redeems them and he brings them back to his promised land. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they chronicle that restoration. And so these two books, they often... Uh, work as a pair. They're packaged as one because they fit so well together. And so the book of Ezra, it covered about 70 years of time from when King Cyrus the Great sent the first uh, wave of exiles back to rebuild the temple all the way up until Ezra is sent to teach in the temple. And then we pick up with Nehemiah and Nehemiah is the sequel. And it starts about 14 years after Ezra has been sent to Jerusalem. 
And Nehemiah is the story about how King Artaxerxes, and you remember him, he's the one that married Esther and who sent Ezra. He sends his trusted right-hand man, Nehemiah, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah comes with the third wave of exiles, and they rebuild the wall despite lethal opposition, and they complete it in just 52 days. It's a pretty miraculous feat. We actually find that if you'll just turn to the left, the last few verses of chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, 52 days. The month of Elul is important here because it's the sixth month. So on the 25th day of the sixth month, the wall is completed. And then you'll find, looking down, you see chapter 7 gives an account of all the people that are there. And chapter 7 ends with, and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. All right, and here we are. All the promises have been kept. The temple is rebuilt. The footings of the wall have been set and secure. And the people have returned to their ancestral homes. They are ready to start life again as God's people. But we need chapter 8. Because just as the foundation for the temple had to be set first, and the footings for the wall had to be set first, so now the groundwork for the people of God has to be set before we can move forward. That's why we need chapter 8. And so follow along as I read. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masai on his right hand, and Pedadiah, Mishael, Makajah, Hashem, Hashbananadah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Masai, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law 
that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Blessed be the Lord, the great God. Amen and amen. Well, this is my prayer for us, beloved that our Savior, Jesus Christ, would be our strength and our joy, and that we would find him more clearly and more beautifully in the pages of God's word each time it's read. And so let's walk through this passage step by step, and I'll, I'll try to give you some waypoints along the way to help us navigate it, and then I'll share some implications when we get to the end of the text. Now, our passage outlines two parallel stories. The first happens all in one day, on the first day of the seventh month of the year. And the second story starts in verse 13, goes to the end of the chapter, and takes place on the second day all the way to the 23rd day of the same month. But each story follows the same pattern. So first, God's people gather around God's word and they listen to it, and it's read and explained. And when they understand it, because of the clear teaching of their leaders, they respond accordingly. And each time, in both events, the first and the second, it culminates in their exceeding joy at the provision of the Lord. So let's walk through the first one and the second one together. And, and so to help us kind of navigate it, let's first think about how the people of God gather purposefully. The people of God gather purposefully. And in the first story, we find that in verses 1 and 2. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. All the people gathered. Now, it's important that we recognize that the author of this passage doesn't want us to miss who the main human characters are here. Because it's easy for us uh, to focus on the big names like Nehemiah or Ezra or the list of the Levites or things like that. But humanly speaking, the main characters in this chapter are the ordinary people of God. 22 times in, just 18, in these 18 verses, they're mentioned. And, and most often, they're referred to as all of the people, 11 times, all of the people did something, all of the people, sometimes more than once in the same verse, all of the people, all of the people. The author even goes out of his way to repeat the fact that it was the men, it was the women, and all who could understand what they heard, which is the way to describe the children that were included in the service, in the assembly. Anyone who had ears to hear was there to listen. And, and they gathered voluntarily. The emphasis in the chapter is on the initiative of the ordinary people to assemble as one man, as with one purpose. This mass of people, they have, they have one objective. They have one mind. They want to hear from the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. And so they call out to, to Ezra, and Ezra's the right pick for this. He's perfect for the job. Because in Ezra chapter 7, when we're introduced to Ezra, we're told that Ezra was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And that the good hand of his God was on him. And that Ezra had set his heart 
to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's where Ezra had set his heart. Even in the exile, he had set his heart to know God's word, to do God's word, and to explain God's word, hopefully, in the promised land. And so we haven't seen Ezra in about 14 years, but he's ready for center stage. But he's not the main attraction. The people have assembled to hear from the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. Now, we're not exactly told which parts of the first five books of the Bible that Ezra reads. Probably given the time frame that's described here, he, he didn't read it from cover to cover because he needed to do some explaining along the way. But what is important is that the people are here for the real deal. They're not here for Ezra's comments. They're not here for Ezra's compilation of what he thinks are, are the, the, the high points. No, they are here to hear from the Lord, from the Lord's prophet, Moses, because ultimately they want to be near their God and they've been given access to their God and to his character through his word. And so the covenant keeping God of Israel, Yahweh has given them his word delivered by his prophets for them to access him and they have gathered at that access point. And so Ezra, the priest, brought the law, it says in verse two, before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Now, they didn't just gather and didn't just gather with a purpose. That purpose is expressly that they would understand rightly. So they gathered purposefully to understand rightly. And so Ezra begins by, by reading out loud. He, he's on a platform built for the purpose. That feels familiar, right? And then he's gonna teach for hours and hours and hours. For some of you, that feels familiar to our sermons around here. But to be fair, the Israelites had some catching up to do, okay? So, you know, we get it. And our sermons aren't that long, guys. So, but remember, Ezra's not alone. The, the text actually goes to great lengths and requires many tongue-tied moments to explain that it's not just Ezra up there, that there's a team approach to this. He's got 13 other men up on the platform with him and 13 more Levites out among the people explaining God's word to them because the purpose isn't, isn't just to read for reading's sake, it's to read to understand. And remember, the main characters are the people themselves the men and the women and the children, and they've gathered around God's word to understand it rightly. And to do so, they listen intently. Their body language expresses their focus. They face towards Ezra up on the platform. They stand at the reading of God's word. It's like they're honoring a bride or a judge as they walk in, as they walk into the room. It's like, it's like a guard standing uh, out in front of the palace or at the tomb of the unknown soldier. He's not sitting, he's not slacking. He is showing that he is giving his undivided attention by standing to face forward. And so the people of God stand to hear God's word. Now, as a quick side note, I, I don't think this is prescriptive, meaning I, I don't think that this requires that God's people stand every time God's word is read. I, I know there are many churches that, that have that tradition and I, I think it can be wonderful, but I, I think here this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Uh, it's not commanded here that they stand. It's not commanded anywhere else in the Bible that we stand. And all the other things that they, ways that they respond to God's word, like lifting their hands or bowing down, uh, none of those are, are required either. But I do think that when done in faith, it can be a beautiful and, and helpful thing to do to focus on God's word. Because the point is to focus, not in and of itself, but to understand 
to worship. And it needs to lead to worship, which is what we see here. Ezra blesses the Lord, verse 6. He blesses the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. They're, they're, they're joining in the blessing of the Lord, the great God. They are affirming his word. And, and there's a couple different ways we can understand amen, amen uh, to be translated. We, we use it, uh, it uh, in our own language, just as amen and amen. But you could think of it like uh, truly, truly, like they're proclaiming, yes, that's right. That is good. God is true. God is all those things. Or, or, or they could be saying it more like, may it be, may it be. Like it's, it's hopeful. It's longing for God to fulfill the promises that he's given to his people. Or, or it could be submissive. It could be like, so be it, so be it. They, they are... They're, they're hearing the word of God. It's laying into their hearts and they are submitting to it. Their, their other body language might give us some hints there. Uh, they've lifted their hands, maybe joyfully, may, maybe submissively, uh, open-handedly to the Lord. They're, they're bowing down their faces before God all the way to the ground. Their hearts are submissive to the Lord and, and their, their posture reflects that. And they're attempting to worship the Lord and to do so rightly, but they can't do it on their own. It's not something we just do instinctively. Even sometimes our right responses don't go far enough. And so that's what we see here in the passage. They need help. They need the Levites. And so we're not exactly sure how these 13 Levites that are... Uh, the given to us in verse seven, what exactly they're doing. We know that they are, they're out among the people and they're helping them to understand. So maybe as, as Ezra reads, they're, they're stationed in different places to, to uh, explain or, or to answer questions along the way. Maybe as he expounds on it and, 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 and explains things to people, he, they're literally translating it for the people. The, the, the exiles have lived away from uh, Jerusalem and Israel for centuries, some of them up to 300 years. It's been uh, generation after generation after generation speaking primarily Aramaic. And so maybe even as the word of God is being read to them in Hebrew, they don't have ears to hear it. And it has to be translated to them for them to be able to understand it clearly. Either way, however Ezra has organized it, these men are out among the people so that they can understand it rightly. And what we see is that there are two evidences of understanding something rightly. First is the ability to make it clear to others. So the Levites clearly understand, Ezra clearly understands, and they're going to make it clear to these others. And secondly, that they have the ability to follow its commands with joy. That's how we know that they understand it rightly. They, they follow the commands with joy. And so we see that ability to clearly understand uh, expanded upon in verses 9 through 12. So the, the Israelites have stood and heard the word of God, read and explained to them for maybe six hours. And their response is to weep at the word of God. Weeping at the word of God is a right response. Let's be clear. Being convicted by the word of God as it lands on our hearts and it shows us that God is holy and we are not. And he has called us to a standard and we cannot meet it. That is something worth mourning over. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to stop at grief. The people need to know that they need to go forward because ironically, what they're doing on the first day of the seventh month is as they are mourning over how they have disobeyed God's word, if they continue to only mourn, then they will continue to disobey God's word. Because God's word has told them that on the first day of the seventh month, they're to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. 
It's a holy day. It's the Lord's day. It's not their day. They don't get to do with it what they want to do. They need to do with it what God has intended for them to do. It's a holy day. It's the Lord's day. We don't weep on the Lord's day. And that doesn't mean we don't have tears. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. It means that our eyes are set forward to the joy of the Lord. To look beyond the hardship and to see that even in our best efforts, we still fall short. And God is faithful. He is faithful to redeem a people for himself. He is good to fill in far beyond all the gaps that we leave, even with our best efforts. And so the people are here instructed to find their strength, not in their own obedience, not in their wall, not in their own arm, but to find their strength, to find their refuge in the joy of the Lord. To turn and to trust in the Lord. And because this day is holy, they are to go and to host a feast. They're to eat the best food and they're to drink the best drink and they're to be generous with one another and they're to host a party because this is the day that the Lord has made and they will be glad and rejoice in it. And secondly, we know that they rightly understand because not only can they make it clear to others, but they can follow it themselves. And that's exactly what they do. And so our third and final waypoint we see in these stories is that the people rejoice greatly. They rejoice greatly. And they rejoice greatly because it says they had understood the words that were declared to them. Praise God. Praise God that he has made his word available to them. That he has revealed himself through his word. And that he has given them those who can help them understand it, to explain it, to rightly apply it to their life, to tune their lives to God's word and to God's character. Praise God. That is worth rejoicing over. To greatly rejoice, to feast upon. Because they know that it's not their strength, it's the Lord's strength. It's not their walls that they find refuge in. It's the Lord who is their refuge. Literally, when it says that the, the joy of the Lord is your strength, you can even say the, the Lord is our refuge, our, our, our castle, our stronghold. Like the songs that we sang this morning, turning to the Lord as our place of protection. And in that sure and steady place, we have great joy. And we have the freedom to rejoice. No longer do they have to stand and work with one hand to build the wall while, while holding a sword with the other to protect themselves. Now, in this moment, they can set both of those things aside and just rejoice in the Lord. Because he's built the walls. and Because he keeps them safe. They rejoice greatly. And then they do it all over again. Day two. Let's look quickly at the, at the second, second story. And on the second day, it's not that big of a party. They get up the next morning and, and go study God's word. And on the second day, the heads of father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And so again, the people gather purposefully the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people and the priests and the Levites. So in a representative system, this again is all the people are represented here. And they gather together with Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. In order to study the clear purpose, in order to study the words of the law. And they, they rightly understand it. Because what they do is they find in it written that the Lord has commanded them. They find that it's, it's not this that they hear it read and it goes in one ear and out the other. It's not just background noise. It's not white noise to them. Going and studying God's word, it, it wasn't a box that they needed to check 
or, or just an exercise in endurance. It, it doesn't say that they found through this that they had the ability uh, to lengthen their attention span or to, to, to learn new things. No, because they have rightly understood, they realize that God has commanded them by Moses to do something. And so then they follow those specific instructions. They declare it to the people, they go home and they tell everybody, this is what we found out. In just a couple weeks, we are supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths and we have to start getting ready for it. And so everybody does what they're supposed to do. They go out into the countryside and they gather these branches and they build these booths. Now, when you see booths, they're think of like shelters. This is like a nationwide camp out. They're going out into the woods and they're building lean-tos, things for themselves. And it's not because they didn't have the technology to build anything better. They would have had tents, they would have had buildings, but no, God has commanded them at this specific time to celebrate the Feast of Booze. And they do it in the way that God has prescribed. They don't say, you know what, like wild olive, that's like so seventh century BC. And we've been hanging out with the Babylonians. They're the kings of all things. And they have taught us these great ways to dye goat her, uh, uh, whatever, skins. And so now that we have this technology, that's what we're gonna use. That's what we're gonna focus on. It's gonna be all the rage at this year's Feast of Booths. No, they, they trust in the Lord so deeply that they do exactly what they've been called to do. Nothing more, nothing less in worship to the Lord. And what this results in is great rejoicing. They host the Feast of Booze with such fervor and with such faith that it said that such a feast had not been hosted since it was inaugurated all the way back with Joshua, the son of Nun. Because here's the point of the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths is given to us multiple times in Exodus, in Numbers, in Leviticus. And it's, it's set up to be a memorial to remember what God did to carry his people through the Exodus. So the Passover happens in the first month and it reminds how God rescued his people out of Israel. And the Feast of Booths happens in the seventh month, the, the, the holy month, the month of completion, the month that has three different feasts in it. And in this particular feast, God's people are meant to go out and bring in all of these branches and make booths for themselves to remind themselves that God carried his people through the desert for 40 years and that their, their shoes didn't wear out and their clothing didn't fall apart and they, they were preserved all the way through. And so with this physical representation of inward faith, they build for themselves shelters that don't really hold the rain out and definitely don't hold their enemies out. And they build them and they get into them and they sleep in them and they sleep in them for eight days. Why? Because they're not trusting in walls. They're not trusting in their own arm. They're trusting in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is their strength. And God has perfectly timed all things so that Nehemiah would arrive, they would rebuild the wall, and in 52 days, it would happen right before the seventh month. So that when they start this new phase as God's returned people, it starts with the ordinance of remembering that God had rescued them before and he will always be their strength and he will always be their shelter. And they stand in every corner of the city, on the rooftops and in the courtyards, everywhere declaring, we trust in the God who is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So what do we do with these two stories? What's the point of this chapter? Well, I think what we have here is a reminder that the word of the Lord leads the people of the Lord to the joy of the Lord. I just want a summary of this chapter. The word of the Lord leads the people of the Lord to the joy of the Lord. 
And if we're going to understand what the implications are for us uh, as a congregation, as for individuals, I think that's where we want to start. To know that the word of the Lord is going to lead you as, a, as one of God's people to the joy of the Lord. And so let's think about some implications, and I'll try to keep these brief. But first, we want to gather purposefully. As God's people, we want to gather purposefully around God's word. May it drive what we do and why we do it and how we do everything as a congregation. And, and honestly, as I, as I meditated this week on the myriad of ways this could play out in a congregation, I want you to know that I step into this pulpit this morning deeply encouraged by you, UBC. You love God's word. Praise God. That is, that is a gift from the great God that you love his word so deeply. And I, I can see it in countless ways. Let me just paint out a few. I, I love how you engage with the sermon text before, during, and after the sermon. I, I love that there are those of you who get together every week to, to, to share cross-references from the sermon text and to give summary statements, just like I gave uh, from the sermon to one another to better understand the text. I love that you as a congregation involuntarily, when one of your pastors stands here and says, in verse X, your heads go down because you wanna see it too. You're not waiting for them to tell you, you wanna see it in the text. I, I love how you, when, when you come through with your member interviews or, or when I'm talking to you about how to find a church when you need to move someplace else, that you love God's word so much, it's central to what draws you here or takes you someplace else. I, I can see your love for it in, in your bleary but eager eyes at BTI every morning. I, I can hear it uh, in the ways that you pray on Sunday nights, like Lord willing, we'll get to do tonight, or, or the way Nate just prayed for us. Thank you, brother, just a moment ago. Or Nick, or, or, or the ways you guys pray for one another just in countless times throughout the week. The texts I get on weeks that I preach are super encouraging because they are filled with God's word and because you love to hear God's word. I, I, I love the way you, you sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs so that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. I even this week got to hear of your love of God's word from a non-Christian neighbor who told us about how uh, you love them and how you shared God's word with them. Bless the Lord, the great God. And all the people said, amen, amen. And so as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. UBC, may that grow more and more. May it grow in your heart and how you pray for it and desire it. May it grow in how you are devoted to God's word individually, how you gather with his saints on the Lord's day, how you intentionally find other Christians to read God's word with, whether it's a spouse or, or your kids or a roommate or a coworker or someone else here at the church. May, may it expand and grow in 2024. If you're still looking for New Year's resolutions and it's never a bad time to put together a new resolution, then, then may it fix on how to center God's word in your life. And, and we all have to own this responsibility. All of us have to own the responsibility to set the word of God at the center of our lives, both individually and corporately. Because it's not finally the staff or the elders who are solely responsible, although they do have to do that as, as ones who will have to give an account. No, it's the responsibility of each and every one of us to encourage and to expect and to ensure that the word of God is central to the life of UBC for generations to come. 
that all who could understand would hear God's word and treasure God's word and find their joy in the Lord. And so what are the implications for us is we want to not only gather purposefully, but understand rightly. Well, it's not just that we gather around God's word, it's that we gather around God's word to understand it. And so that starts with an orientation in each of our hearts that God's word is relevant and it's sufficient. And that it has in it everything we need for life and godliness. And that its truths will make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And only that kind of submissive posture to his word will then rightly tune our hearts in the way Ryan was talking about earlier, would rightly tune our hearts to walk in a manner worthy of our Savior. And if we're not submissive to God's authority and God's word, then we're definitely not going to also be submissive to those that he has given us to rightly understand God's word and God's authority, those authorities he's put over us. And so we, we need to be ready to, to seek out and to submit to those leaders God's put over us, whether in the church or, or in the home, those who can help us to understand God's word. Because did you see how indispensable godly leaders were in the chapter this morning? Without them and their faithfulness to perform their duties, the, the people would have been left wandering in the darkness. But instead, because they've rightly administered their authority, dawn breaks over them and they're able to worship the Lord with glad and sincere hearts. And, and so elders of UBC, and those who aspire to be elders, be careful then to reprove, rebuke, and exhort God's people, as we read earlier, with complete patience in teaching. Brothers, your job is not to scold or to lord over the sheep or, or to abdicate your role to instruct. Instead, it's to help God's people to rightly understand and handle God's word. Because it's not just those with the title of elder or, or a staff position uh, who teach. We are all, as Christians, called to be disciple makers, which is inherently a teaching task. So whether it's in a formal setting, like down on the second floor during the equipping hour, or an informal setting, like in your home or in a coffee shop, we should all endeavor to help one another to understand and rightly apply God's word in our lives. And I, I think this has a, a particular importance for parents or, or even more specifically for dads. Did you see how they showed up in verse 13? They brought all of their family in verses two and three and then they come back for round two in verse 13. They want that second helping and to be able to bring it home and to share it with their family. And then children in here, little guys, I, I'm so grateful that you're in here. I know it can be hard to listen to what we have to do in here and there's a lot of wiggles and a lot of things you'd rather be doing, but we trust that this is really good for you. Not good for you in the way that like the medicine tastes bad as it goes down good for you, but in the way that this is where you will find joy eternal. This is where you will hear the very words of life. And so little ones, even nameless pinnocks in the room, let's remember that our goal when we're in here is to focus on God's word, to be able to listen to it and to understand it and to help other people listen to it and understand it. So like for instance, we have those little uh, coloring sheets that are out at the front desk. You can grab those and they help you follow along uh, in the service, or, or you can bring coloring or, or other things that help you to, to give your undivided attention to the teaching of God's word. Wh whatever works, great. As long as it's not a distraction to you and to others, that's great. And so maybe keep the devices away, right? We're all uh, prone to think that we are better at multitasking than we really are. So probably a good reminder for all of us to, to listen with a pen in hand and maybe not a phone in hand as we listen to God's word taught. And we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that we have this indescribable privilege of living in a country where the gospel is freely preached 
and when we can gather without fear around God's word. But remember that millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe don't have those privileges. And under the threat of death this morning, they gathered in faith for their own little feasts of the book. And their access points to God's word are constantly diminishing. And so we need to praise God for what he's given us and pray to the God of the universe that he would bless and care for them. And then we need to make every effort to help them in whatever way we can, which includes not only sending our money, but some of our best to go to be among them, to shore them up maybe for the rest of their lives to help them to rightly understand God's word and apply it to their life. Because not only do we have the privilege of being in a place where it's free for us to gather, we speak a mother tongue where we have countless resources to us for us to be able to understand God's word. Wonderful translations of God's word. When there are thousands of languages across the globe where they have zero access to God's word. Not a single word has been translated in their language for them to understand the truths of scripture. And we need to do whatever we can in faith to help fix that. It's why we are committed as a congregation to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and maybe more to send people to the ends of the earth, to the hardest places on the planet so that they can learn multiple languages, maybe taking a decade or more to do it, so they can translate God's word into a language that's never heard this truth, so they can explain it clearly and give them the sense so that the people will understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will join us in rejoicing around his throne forever. That's worth doing. That's a requirement from this text. That's not a simple implication, a maybe from this text. We must be a part of that to make disciples to the ends of the earth. And so I'll tell you, I think all of you, almost all of you, need to consider joining the children's ministry team down the hall. Absolutely. That's low-hanging fruit, guys. There are people right down the hall with eternal souls who need to hear this very truth. And you have the opportunity to be trained and equipped to do that so that when you do that better down the hall, those of us in here are able to listen better and go home and share with our own families. Absolutely, you need to sign up for children's ministry. It's on the back of the worship guide. The train's coming up in a couple weeks. I don't know what more I need to tell you. All of you need to do that. And some of you need to go above and beyond that. And you need to be ready to go to the ends of the earth and give the rest of your lives to tell other people who aren't as close, but who are just as needy to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. That's what we are called to do with this wonderful book. With this wonderful book. In every opportunity we have, whether down the hall or across the globe, we are going to be people who help others to rightly understand God's word because that's what leads to great rejoicing. That's what leads to great rejoicing. And so let me just finally ask you two more things. First, where is your joy found? What's the source of your strength? What refuge do you have to weather the trials of this life and to carry you safely to the joys of the next life? Is your joy, is your strength, is it like the confetti that fell in Times Square? Is it weightless? Is it flimsy? Is it forgettable? Or have you set your life on the foundation of Christ, the word of God incarnate, as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't, then in Hebrews 12, one through three would call you to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and look to Jesus to be the founder and the perfecter of your faith. 
Because Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He despised the shame of death by rising from the grave, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you will turn away from your sin and trust in Christ as your only Lord and Savior, he is offering you joy everlasting. It doesn't mean that there won't be hard things about this life. There won't be, that doesn't mean there won't be temptations along the way, but it does mean that you'll have the ballast of assurance of the joy of all creation. Jesus Christ is yours forevermore. I would love to talk to you more about what it would mean to trust in Jesus Christ. You can find me at the back doors on your way out after the service, or you can catch anybody sitting around you. They would love to help you understand this joy that we have and to give you an answer for the hope that they have. And, and brother and sister in Christ, consider him who has endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. For, for we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if the tent, the booth, the shelter that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, one that's eternal in the heavens. And for a while we're still in this tent, here and now, we groan and we are burdened. But we know that what one day, what's mortal, will be swallowed up by life, by life eternal. And so we are always of good courage, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, but we walk by faith and not by sight. We go to God's word so that we can walk in the joy of his strength, not in our own. So whether it's taking the Lord's Supper together as a church or breaking bread tonight at the potluck or saying grace over your own lunch by yourself this week at work. Remember that God's provision in your life in the myriad of ways it shows up, it's just a foretaste of that eternal provision that he has made for us in Christ. The bread and the wine, they point to the marriage supper of the lamb in the new heavens and the new earth when we will fellowship with our king. And the fellowship that we share here, it points to the union we will have with our Savior, our Redeemer, forever in the place that he's prepared for us. And the joy we experience now, often despite tears and groanings, well, it will one day give way to an eternal joy where there are no tears, there are no sorrows, only blessings forevermore in Christ. And how do we get there? And how do we help others get there? Well, by God's grace, it's that the people of the Lord gather around the word of the Lord to be strengthened by the joy of the Lord for the glory of the Lord until we see our Lord face to face. May that be soon. Let's pray.